BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Before we get to the meat of this week's episode, we wanted to make an announcement. We put a lot of work into the show. Every week we interview a guest and we've been working very hard to get guests into studios so that our audio quality is the best that it can be. And now we've done it a hundred times and we want to do so much more, like bring you videos, create additional content that augment the experience of having that intimate conversation with a scientist. We want to keep growing, but we can't do all of these things without additional financial support. So we're launching a Patreon account. Now, Patreon is a crowdfunding website like Kickstarter, but not like Kickstarter. It's designed to help support content creators who produce content week after week instead of just a one-off campaign. So if you want to support the show directly, you can go to patreon.com slash inquiringminds where you can watch our video and get exclusive perks like photographs from today's episode. We'd be honored if you make any contribution, whether it's a dollar, three dollars, a million dollars, seriously, a a billion dollars. And now you're getting greedy. But we're so proud of what we've accomplished over the run here at Inquiring Minds, and we hope that you can contribute to help it grow further. And as always, we thank you for your support. It's Friday, September 4th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com and on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This week's episode is sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing those savings directly on to you. To get $50 toward any one of their obsessively engineered mattresses, visit casper.com slash inquiringminds and use promo code inquiringminds. And this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming or DVD and CD. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And now for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of Practicing Mindfulness, an introduction to meditation. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. This is our 100th episode. Happy 100! Yay, we are super excited about that. 
But it's also been a very hard week for science and for us personally, because we lost a giant and a friend, Dr. Oliver Sacks, neurologist and best-selling author. So this week, we're going to be remembering Oliver and talking to another one of his mentees, not just me, science writer Steve Silberman, whose book, Neurotribes, The Legacy of Autism, has just made it onto the New York Times bestseller list, joining, of course, Oliver Sacks. Steve also had a personal connection to Oliver. So at the top of the show, we're going to exchange some stories, and then we'll talk a little bit about Steve's book. I think it can't be understated how important Oliver Sacks is to uh, science communication and to science in general. Like, there couldn't be a more revered person in in both of those worlds at, at this moment. You know, it's almost become cliche to read a personal statement by a student who wants to go into psychology or neurology that cites Oliver Sacks as a mentor. It's amazing the influence that he his work has had on people. Even in my own psychology classes that, you know, I teach now, there are always uh, at least a handful of students who tell me that, you know, he was the reason that he's that they are now taking this course. He's a lot of the reason that we get to have science podcasts. That's absolutely right. Um, but, you know, it's a very, uh, it's a sad time. It's a great, great loss. We, we expected this because he had, he had um, revealed that he had terminal cancer back in February. But, you know, in some ways, it's still, you know, the loss, obviously, is just as great. But the benefit of him having known that um, he had terminal cancer is that we also learned a little bit more about what it means to be at death's door. And some of his more recent writings that have been published about his experience in the last few months, I think, have been you know, so touching and so interesting and have changed people's lives in ways that many of his other writings beforehand hadn't. Frankly, it's been some of his best work. And... Uh, we have much more to look forward to because he has a number of writings that he did manage to complete before he passed away that will be coming out in uh, various magazines. Uh, I think a New Yorker has a piece coming out. New York Magazine has a piece coming out. And he has a couple of nearly completed book manuscripts, which I, for one, am really excited to read. Uh, he died in, at his home, uh, surrounded by his family and friends. And even in his last days, he was able to enjoy some of the things that um, he really took a lot of joy from. Like, for example, he was surrounded by all of his elements. And he did turn 82. And every year he would get a piece of the element uh, that marked his year. I was actually really lucky to celebrate his 80th birthday with him. Um, and uh, it was a really fun party. I've never been in a room with more Nobel Prize winners than that birthday party. I hope he's swimming in heaven. I'm sure he's swimming in whatever heaven means to him. Steve Silverman, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. It's great to be here. I can't imagine a better guest to do what I want to do now, which is to make a tribute to one of our mentors, for both of us, um, Oliver Sacks. So I want to start out with first asking you, how did you come across his writings or his person? Wow. Um, I came across his writings because I used to go out with someone who really liked his writing. And uh, he's, he was another writer as well. And um, I believe he had a crush on Oliver from afar, I must say. And so anyway, when we were going out, he would give me Oliver's books. And they 
they blew my mind so much that I ended up becoming a sort of sax fanboy. And uh, when I heard that he lived on City Island, which he in fact no longer did, I actually found someone to drive me out to City Island. And because I didn't have his address, I was just kind of literally like wandering around the island, like, where does this guy live? And then I ran into a postman and I said, I know you're not supposed to tell me this because I knew that Oliver probably got tons of mail. I said, I know you're not supposed to tell me this, but where does Oliver Sacks live? And I, you know, tried to be affable and not seem like a completely insane stalking maniac. And uh, he told me that Oliver had in fact left the island, but he showed me where he used to live. And so I sort of stood in front of Oliver's house, you know, um, and soaked up the vibe. But uh, then the way that I met him, was that, Wait, let me just jump yeah. in there for a second, because yeah. I also stalked Oliver. Oh, cool. Yeah. How did so, you stalk him? <laughs> so um, when I was in high school, I came across his book, uh, An Anthropologist on Mars, and it completely changed my life. And I, I think, actually, most people who read his book, who become uh, books, become Oliver Sacks fans, be have crushes on him. I mean, it's not just, you know, that we are engaged with what he's writing about, but about the person who's writing, you know, is very engaging, too. So uh, I had this experience, which we can talk about in a minute, a little bit more in depth, if we want to, where um, I sort of, you know, read all of whatever was coming out, and it was it was really great. And when I went to uh, college, I chose psychology because I thought it would sort of, you know, open up this world that he had brought me into. And in my sec after my second year of college, I did an internship at what was then called the Clark Institute, which was a was an institute of, of psychiatry. They now have a much less institutionalized name for it. And I spent time in uh, the intake ward uh, for the people who were you know, having psychotic episodes for the first time. And I got extremely frustrated because I felt that we were spending all of our time trying to fit the patients into a box. Which diagnostic checklist do they do their symptoms fit the most? And I mean, that's what you do the first time you have a psychotic episode because you're trying to figure out how to treat these people. And I wrote to... Um, Oliver. <laughs> and he wrote back. And when he, you know, he wrote back and there was his address on his letterhead. And it was so pretty. It had, I still actually have the letter. It's, you know, been on my desk oh, for many, many years. Um, but it has this, you know, beautifully written address. And so I remember the first time I went to New York, I actually went to his street and stood in front of the apartment and just gazed up. That's so great. That's so great. Yeah. So, uh, what happened was I wrote an article uh, for Wired called The Geek Syndrome, which was one of the first mainstream articles to talk about autism in high-tech communities. And um, so it came out, and I was actually waiting in the airport to get on a plane to go to New York when my phone rang. And it was Oliver's assistant, Kate Edgar, calling me to tell me that Oliver loved the article, which was absolutely wonderful. And I said hey, that's great. You guys live in New York, don't you? Why don't I come and visit you? And so she said, sure. So I went down to Horatio Street and, um, you know, walked into the office and Oliver was wearing a bathing suit. And what's so funny is that I now look back at what I did and said that afternoon in Oliver's office and see it as painfully naive. Because what I did was you know, I'm, I'm all cheerful. I'm like, Oliver, I hear you liked my article. Yeah. And uh, he mentioned, uh, yes, I'm going to London, you know, in several days. And I said, why don't I come with you? <laughs> and uh, believe it or not, he said yes. 
And so, um, I mean, I, I, we were on separate planes, I believe, but, you know, we met up in London and uh, he took me to the Science Museum in South Kensington. And I have to say, if there's one thing in my life that I regret, it's that I didn't record Oliver's guided tour of the Science Museum in South Kensington because it was, uh, you know, it was Oliver's annotated history of science. And it was so beautiful. And in that voice, I mean, God, that voice, he had the most delicious, like, Jewish, Bronx, London, you know, it, it was just an exquisite voice. But anyway, so we had a good time uh, in London, although after spending like an afternoon with him, oh, what I had done with the, re- the reason why I was able to go to London, it's not like I f- I'm flying, you know, jumping on planes and going to London. I successfully pitched to Wired a profile of Oliver. And I remember like there was, you know, they were like, uh, Oliver Sacks, that's a little bit outside of Wired's, you know, wheelhouse or something. Like, are you kidding? You know, it's like Oliver just said I could come to London with him. Like, he's one of the great minds, you know. So anyway, so I finally convinced him to let me do it. And, uh, but while I was in London, I realized fatally that I was not nearly intelligent enough to profile this man. And so I called uh, Kate and I said, Kate, you know, Kate, I'm having a crisis. Um, you know, Oliver is so smart. It's like I could never possibly. And she was like, oh, don't worry about it. Everyone feels that way around him. <laughs> so so I wrote the profile and uh, it came out. And that was a very intense process, too, because in the course of writing the profile, I figured out that he was a closeted gay man. And uh, I'm gay. And, you know, I just I figured it out and I you know, wasn't going to say anything to him or write about it. But one day he, he sort of, he was a very intuitive person. And one day my phone rang. I said, hello. And he said, Steve, this is Oliver. And uh, I said, Oliver, you sound distressed. And he said, well, I'm terribly afraid that you're going to reveal something about my sexuality. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, Oliver, don't worry. I'm not going to out you. You know, I, I did say that I that I had to, in order to do justice to his work, I had to write about the emotional connections that he forged with his patients, mm-hmm. but that I wasn't going to out him. And um, in fact, one of the ways that I had figured it out was that I talked to a poet named Tom Gunn, who was one of his primary mentors. Like everyone forgets that two of Oliver's biggest mentors were two gay poets, Tom Gunn and W.H. Auden. And they were two of the major voices of late 20th century, or actually 20th century poetry. Um, So anyway, uh, Oliver and I, really at that point in that conversation, because we ended up talking for about two hours about his sexuality and his feelings about it, that was the point that we really became friends, I would say. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, so... um one of the things that I so over the years, he wrote me this letter back and just to give you a little bit of context. I actually wrote him this letter, you know, in distress. Here I am on this ward and I really want to go into psychiatry because of you. And yet I get there and all it is is about diagnosis. It's not about the patient. It's not at all like your books. <laughs> and and uh, I said, I don't know what to do with my life anymore because I wanted to go to, into medicine so that I could follow into your footsteps. Um, but this isn't what I thought it was going to be. And this is what he wrote back in 1997. Dear Miss Viscontis, thank you so much for your, he inserted the word, fine letter upon a reread. 
Um, I was most moved by it. Oh, and by the way, he wrote it in purple ink. Um, I think in part because I wrote mine in purple ink because I'm a synesthete and it's the only ink that I find inoffensive. <laughs> is that true? Yeah. <laughs> that is so awesome. Yeah. And he somehow oh my God. picked it up and wrote back in purple. Although maybe he always writes in purple. Or no, he doesn't. I can tell you. <laughs> So he says, I can't advise you about the wisdom or necessity of getting a medical degree. Freud himself, and he, you know, quotes exactly where he got that from because he likes footnotes, um, thought one could have a profound understanding and effect on people's inner lives without having to have a medical degree. And yet the medical life introduces one to so much and grounds one, and one must be grounded in a feeling for the organism. I hope your summer's work at the Clark helps resolve these, you know, thoughts with your very best wishes to you, Oliver Sacks. Oh, my God. Just hearing his syntax makes me want to weep. So Seriously. I, yeah. So I know? put this letter, you know, on my on my desk. And um, a couple months later, one of my mom's uh, best friends from when she was a little child came over. And uh, my mom and, and this woman hadn't been in touch for, for many years since before I was born. But they were best friends growing up. And uh, she came over and she was married to a famous film director in Hollywood. And um, they were telling us over dinner about, you know, all the famous people that they were meeting. And I I couldn't relate at all because that was not me (laughs) at all. Um, And so then I excused myself and asked if I could go to my room and, you know, do something else. And so she came up to say goodbye. And she noticed um, above my desk was this letter. And she said, oh, you have a letter from Oliver. (laughs) And I said, you mean Dr. Sachs? You know Oliver? Well, it turns out that her husband is his first cousin. And uh, since then, I adopted them as my fairy godparents <laughs> and uh, through them was able to meet Oliver, you know, a few times and, and enjoy some wonderful moments. And one of the things that I noticed the very first time I met him, um, I was introduced to him as a neuroscientist. By then, I was a graduate student at UCLA. And, you know, he really wasn't at all interested in talking to me. Um, and... Then somehow it came out that I was a synesthete. I think it was actually my godmother who, wanting to bring me into the conversation and wanting to bring Oliver out of the shell, out of his shell, said, "Oh, did you know? You know, Indra sees, um, you know, letters and numbers and color." And he abruptly got off uh, from the table in the middle of dinner and and went downstairs where he was, you know, spe- staying. And I was mortified. Wow. And then 15 minutes later, he comes back up with a, an article that he's writing for the New Yorker on synesthesia. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's so great. And we spent the rest of the evening, wow. you know, in wonderful. cahoots. And one thing, one thing that I noticed from that was that, and I've seen this happen as I've, I've worked with him, or I did work with him with, when, you know, with a few patients in the presence of other neurologists. And I find that it's true that those of us who are in the field or who are writing or, or who essentially are not perceived as patients, we feel as though, you know, we're not smart enough to interact with him. You know, we have this reverence. And, you know, there's this kind of, you know, sense from him, too, that he doesn't really know what to do with us either. Um, but with the patients is a different story. Oh, that's very So as soon as you, as he can see a vulnerability in someone, and maybe that, you know, in some ways your sexual orientation presented that vulnerability, you know, the connection is is profound. It was actually more like he had a vulnerability because I had been out and gay and not uptight about it at all for a long time. And I noticed that um, he started dreaming about my husband and I. And I... I that like, how did you that notice we, that? 
He he told me. Okay. You know what I well what I noticed was that that meant that we were somehow active symbols in his mind of something. Like I didn't. In a sense, it almost felt accidental that it was me and my husband. But you know, his mind was working on us. You know, and uh, I found that very interesting. Yeah, and you know, I think that's one of the things that sometimes those of us who knew him personally, you know, he is very open in his books. That anyone who reads his books almost feels as though they know him. And so I think sometimes people who who actually met him in person can sometimes feel like, wait a minute, I don't, you know, it, you don't feel that warmth and connection and it doesn't help, of course, that it's he has face blindness. It, right. Well, not only that, but he was kind of an awkward guy, actually, mm-hmm. you know. So um, actually that made me wonder if you had ever talked to him about the spectrum, about whether or not he felt that he had... I, di- I did ask him once if he felt that he was on the autism spectrum, I didn't think so myself, but the only reason why I asked him was because uh, so many people were saying it. Mm-hmm. Like autistic people would tell me that, you know, so many people would say, oh, yes, he's on the spectrum, isn't he? And I didn't really know the answer, so I asked him. Mm-hmm. And he said he thought not, but that he did think he was on the Tourettic spectrum. Mm. And he would do um, sort of Tourettic echolalia. Like if we were walking around New York and there was a sudden noise, he would often imitate it immediately, almost uh, involuntarily. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, he felt he was on the Tourettic spectrum. So one of the reasons that I felt that you were a perfect guest uh, to, you know, have this conversation w- with me and, and Kishore is that, you know, you are, you've just written this now best-selling book about um, the type of patient that Oliver put on the map, in a sense, right? So a lot of us discovered autism through Oliver's writings because he was one of the first people, I think, to really put a human face on this you know, I don't even know if we call it a disease anymore. I'd like to ask you about that nomenclature. Um, but, you know, the, the the idea that people with autism are neurodiverse and that, you know, thinking of them as just being disordered is completely missing the point. Yeah. Well, what I found, I mean, my book, Neurotribes, is a it's at least a 70 year history of autism. And in a way, it goes even farther back than that. But uh, it certainly covers the evolution of the diagnosis. And one of the things that I kept finding was that if I would have some realization about the trajectory of autism history or the the meaning of certain twists and turns in, in that long story, Oliver would have almost always gotten there first, like long 20 years before anybody else. And a very clear example of that was his uh, famous profile of Temple Grandin that became the centerpiece of an anthropologist on Mars. Uh, At the time that he wrote that, the notion that adults could be autistic too was still relatively new. In fact, the Asperger syndrome diagnosis had just been added to the DSM. So it wasn't just that he was writing about an autistic person. And what's interesting now is that, you know, there's kind of a generation of young autistic people who were, grew up, you know, the spectrum was already a thing. They got diagnosed early. They have a, a, a very proud cultural awareness of themselves as autistic, which would have been completely unimaginable 30 years ago. Um, but, you know, some of them say, oh, yes, Oliver Sacks and Temple Grandin, such stereotypes. There were no stereotypes at the time. You know, uh, Temple Grandin was very brave to come out as an autistic woman. And she was certainly um, the first autistic adult that even people who had been around the autism parents movement uh, for years and years had ever met. 
So she was really, it was like the first gay person coming out or something. And uh, so Oliver, by presenting her in the full breadth of her humanity with her passions and her humor and her quirks and her, you know, she like autistic people were allegedly incapable of subterfuge, but he has, uh, or she has him put on a construction cap so they can go into a plant and not be noticed. You know, he, he, in a sense, subverted the very limited ideas that the world had of autistic people without even really like saying, you guys are all wrong. You know, all he did was pay attention to her observe her with his usual meticulous precision, and then present her life with humanity and vividness. And it did the job. It really, um, his writing on autism really helped overturn decades of uh, terrible stereotyping. With that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with more in a moment. This episode is sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. They've produced an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. This is a -a one-of-a-kind new hybrid mattress that uses two technologies, latex foam and memory foam, which results in just the right sink, just the right bounce. Plus, there's a risk-free trial and return policy. You can try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. They send it in a box right to your door. And to give you an idea how much less these are selling for, a twin-size mattress is $500 and a king-size mattress is just $950. So to get $50 toward any one of these obsessively engineered, amazingly comfortable, and made-in-America mattresses, Visit casper.com slash inquiringminds and use promo code inquiringminds. That's at casper.com slash inquiringminds, promo code inquiringminds. And this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses have been in production for 25 years, and they offer engaging lectures by top professors who are experts in their fields. One course you can check out is called Practicing Mindfulness, an Introduction to Meditation by Eastern philosophy professor Mark Musi of Rhodes College. It's a comprehensive exploration of mindfulness. So you'll learn how mindfulness, when correctly practiced, offers deep and lasting benefits for mental function and emotional health, as well as physical health and well-being. And for a limited time, The Great Courses is giving a special offer to our listeners. Order Practicing Mindfulness, an introduction to meditation, and get 80% off the original price. But this 80% off savings is only available for a limited time. So don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to take advantage of this special offer. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. So it's actually... Oliver's ability to see aspects of Temple Grandin that were not stereotypical, that I think really are what make his writing about autism so special. And so I want to talk a little bit now. I want to, I want to bring Kishore in to, to talk about your book so that we can understand what the context was uh, for this kind of writing. And also, you know, most of us think of this kind of explosion in the autism diagnosis happening, you know, a couple of decades ago. And so I want to I want to ask you about, you know, why did that happen? Why did the diagnosis become more common at a certain point? And then what happened after that? Okay, this is the short version of a very long story. But um, the standard view of autism history is that it was discovered in 1943 by a child psychiatrist in uh, Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore named Leo Connor. He published a landmark paper describing 11 patients, and that was the sort of official discovery of autism. Well, that's not what happened. 
what happened is that autism was really discovered in the 1930s by Hans Asperger and his colleagues at the University of Vienna. And what they discovered, furthermore, was what we now call the autism spectrum. Uh, I believe they called it a continuum, at least one of them did. But uh, they saw autism as a lifelong condition caused by the interaction of multiple genes, very heritable, lasting from birth to death, conveying gifts as well as challenges. So Asperger understood that uh, one of his very profoundly impaired patients could grow up to become a professor of astronomy along the way, uh, disproving one of, or finding a flaw in one of Newton's proofs in graduate school. Um, you know, obviously uh, not all of them turned out that well, but um, basically Asperger knew that the continuum embraced both genius and profound disability, and that some of the kids would never learn to speak or live independently, uh, whereas others, you know, could become uh, uh, scholars or amazing uh, people, but they would still be autistic. It's not like they were growing out of their autism or something, and they would still require forms of support from parents, teachers, and the community for their whole lives. Asperger knew all these things in the late 1930s. Well, what no one had done before, uh, before I wrote this book, was to really look at Asperger's work in its historical context. And it's a very interesting thing about science and medicine, and I imagine um, I'll end up talking about this at conferences or something. But the weird thing about autism is that it's been so it's been viewed so exclusively through a medical lens that in the voluminous writings about Asperger syndrome. Not, by the way, not that much writing about Asperger. Like, there's, there were a couple of paragraphs written by Uta Frith in the uh, 80s, which were great. But for the most part, all the writings about Asperger syndrome and Asperger fail to notice that he's working for Nazis in Nazi-occupied Vienna. So if you pull the camera back from Asperger in his clinic, what you see is a secret extermination program against disabled children that was used as a practice run for the Holocaust. And in fact, one of Asperger's former colleagues, a guy named Erwin Jekyllius, uh, became uh, the head of the child extermination program in Vienna. Is this why it took so long for Asperger's views to really come back to the surface? Well, uh, th- we'll get there in, in one more minute. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It, I always tend to ramble on about this, but okay. So what happened was in 1938, by 1938, Jewish clinicians were being purged from from the country and they were fleeing for their very lives. And um, Asperger had several uh, Jewish colleagues work in the clinic with him. And by the way, I want to mention that the clinic uh, for being, you know, being taken over by Nazis eventually, the clinic was an amazingly humane and special place. For one thing, it wasn't just a clinic. It was, a, it was also a school. They would have classes. Asperger would read poetry to the children. There was a nun there named Sister Victorine Zach who would lead the children in dancing and, and phys ed in the morning. So it was really like a total environment designed to help them learn how to socialize with one another and relate to themselves and find a pathway forward through life that would that was 
be good for them and suited to their particular interests. Asperger also developed teaching methods by working with the children instead of imposing some theoretical BS on them from above. He would actually ask the children like what was working for them. And um, so he was decades ahead of everybody. But so in 1938, the, the Jewish clinicians have to leave, basically. One had already left, a woman named Ani Weiss. And then his Asperger's chief diagnostician, George Frankel, left in 1938, rescued from the Holocaust by an American clinician who was bringing uh, Jewish doctors and nurses over to save their lives and finding them jobs in America. Who was that clinician? Leo Connor. And this connection between the two pioneers of autism research has never before been revealed uh, before my book. And so the nearly simultaneous discovery of autism in Vienna and Baltimore has always been considered sort of one of the great synchronicities of 20th century medicine. But I reveal that it was not a mere synchronicity at all because uh, in what, what happened is in 1938, the same, you know, within probably a couple of months after uh, Connor hired George Frankel, um, his first autistic patient arrives in Baltimore. Connor doesn't quite know what to make of him. It's not that Connor was clueless. He had already written the definitive textbook of child psychiatry. He was familiar with so-called pre-psychotic children who uh, some of them were surely autistic. But you know, Connor couldn't make a final diagnosis. So he sends, Connor sends this guy, this kid named Donald Triplett, Donald T in Connor's landmark paper, to a place called the Child Study Home where George Frankel was the head of this sort of clinic, more or less. And in an odd way, it was rather like Asperger's Clinic. And in an even more bizarre coincidence, it had been designed by the same guy who designed Asperger's Clinic. Like, my book is full of sort of fruitful coincidences. But in any case, um, so George Frankel certainly knew what was going on with Donald T, because by that point, he had already seen scores of autistic children in Asperger's Clinic. So George Frankel ends up diagnosing Connor's first three autistic patients, or at least evaluating um, Connor's first three autistic patients. By then, Connor knew the pattern. He could spot it himself. Um, he's unable to find a job for George Frankel. George Frankel and, oh, by the way, Annie Weiss was there too. So when Connor, quote unquote, discovered autism, he actually had, I mean, Annie Weiss wasn't working for Connor, but, you know, obviously they were around. Uh, Connor and Frankel led so-called public clinics together around Baltimore, where parents would bring their children for evaluation. Um, so Frankel and Connor worked together very closely. So the notion like, maybe autism didn't come up. No, no, no. You know, so it begs the question, though, if Connor knew about Asperger's work through George Frankel. And I'm not saying he knew Asperger's name. Maybe Frankel never said Asperger's But name. he knew Who of the, the work. work. Definitely. Why is his definition of autism so dramatically different at that point, so much more narrow than uh, Asperger's definition? Well, that, that's a question that I investigate in depth in the book. The reason is, I think, because... Asperger and Connor had two completely different missions. Asperger was running a kind of remedial school. He was very invested in the children's success. And so he was always looking for ways that they could reach their maximum potential. 
Connor was engaged in a very different project. As one of the first child psychiatrists in America, Connor was literally trying to prove the empirical validity of child psychiatry. And so by finding the first form of quote-unquote psychosis that was endemic to childhood, I think Connor was trying to put uh, child psychiatry on the map. And one thing that I talk about in my book uh, is that Connor's very first paper describes a case of paresis, which was the name for kind of a condition created by having syphilis for a long time, a case of paresis among or in a Native American. Uh, and Connor presents it as an unbelievably rare case, you know, so rare that it, quote unquote, demands explanation. He uses exactly the same language when he talks about autism. He proposes that it's a very rare case. Well, it turns out that paresis was not so rare among Native Americans after all. In fact, there had been a conference on paresis a few years before uh, Connor wrote that paper where a clinician talked about the remarkable preponderance of paresis among his Native American patients. So I think Connor, with his very first paper, learned how to, shall we say, rivet the attention of his colleagues. And in a way, he did it, you know, it was like the dark side of the Saxian force. Like Sax, you know, always presented these rare conditions and, you know, he was going to take you on a tour of these rare conditions. And, you know, I once heard a, a disability rights activist uh, condemn Oliver's writings as a freak show, you know, uh, but Oliver was so compassionate that, that, you know, that strikes me as completely wrong. But in Canner's case, not so wrong. C Connor, you know, hyping these, these conditions is extremely rare. Anyway, it ended up having a catastrophic effect on autism. Now, the, here's the deal. One of the reasons why the two discoveries have been considered a, merely a synchronicity is that, believe it or not, Connor never mentioned Asperger's paper in his voluminous writings about autism. Never, ever. He name-checks Frankel in the original 1943 paper, then Frankel disappears from Connor's world. So Connor becomes the world's leading authority on autism. Clinicians all over the world sent children to Connor for diagnosis. Connor becomes virtually the only voice writing about autism for years on end after his landmark paper. He never mentions Asperger in his work. So Asperger becomes completely obscure, except in Eastern Europe. Now people make excuses for Connor. They say, well, after all, the paper was published in German. Connor's native language. Well, after all, the paper was published in this obscure German medical journal, which Connor cited over and over again in his papers. You know, Connor obsessively read every paper written on autism. Would he somehow overlook the one paper that was published a year after his own? No. So I think pr my guess is that as a Jew, Connor probably suspected that Asperger collaborated with the Nazis. And, you know, Asperger certainly stayed at the University of Vienna long after the Nazis took over. So he probably had some pretty complicated dance that he had to do. I know he himself was not a Nazi because he was a member of a, a Christian youth group that was very anti-Nazi and had been banned by the Nazis. But to stay at the University of Vienna, he probably had to make some complicated arrangement. And Connor might have gotten that drift through Frankel or something and said, screw this guy. I'm just not going to give him credit. So yeah. you also talk in your book, though, about a time in which the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is used to diagnose autism, 
is changed to reflect more of the Asbergian view rather than the right. Connor view. So I want to talk a little bit, ask you a little bit about that. When did that happen and well, what was the effect? Right. Well, the important thing to remember is that whereas Asperger presented a view of what we would now call the spectrum, uh, this lifelong condition with widely varying clinical manifestations, Connor framed autism very narrowly, so narrowly that he sent nine out of 10 children who were sent to his office for an autism diagnosis away without giving them one, sent by other clinicians, referred by other clinicians for an autism diagnosis. He was extremely parsimonious about dispensing his precious diagnosis. So, and he, you know, he, he claimed that it was very, very rare. And in fact, he, he also claimed that it was constantly under threat of becoming diluted uh, by clinicians who would diagnose children with some of the features that he described as autism. Well, what happened was, after decades of that, really, uh, a, a young cognitive psychologist named Lorna Wing in London, who had a profoundly autistic daughter, who was practically a classic case of Connor's syndrome, she decided to do one of the very first prevalence studies of autism in a general population. In other words, rather than waiting for people to be referred to her office, she and a research assistant named Judith Gould pounded the pavement in the suburb of London called Camberwell, going to special schools, going to clinics, um, digging through dusty cabinets of medical records to try to find children who exhibited autistic traits, basically. She focused on children uh, whose IQs measured under 70 because she felt that those children and their families would be the ones who would need the most help. And lo and behold, she finds that there are many, many more children uh, who have autistic traits than Connor's model would have predicted. And so at first she doesn't know what, she doesn't know what uh, to do with that data. Like, what, was Connors wrong, you know, or something? Because he was really the unquestioned authority. And she then comes across a reference in a paper by a Dutch psychiatrist to this paper by Hans Asperger. And it's like, what's this? Well, it's in German. Luckily, her husband, John Wing, spoke German. So he translated the paper for her. She reads it and she says, this is exactly what I'm seeing. What Asperger and his colleagues saw in Vienna, I am now seeing you know, 30 years later or whatever. So um, at that point, she decided that Connor's diagnosis was so narrow that it was possibly not even useful as a clinical diagnosis. And so she publishes one paper where she talks about like, it, you know, this calls into question the usefulness of Connor's syndrome as a clinical diagnosis. But she eventually decides that I think there's too much like vested infrastructure in, in Connor's uh, definition. So what she does is she quietly works with the subcommittee that's putting together the next revision of the DSM. And she basically, in two series of revisions to, made in 1986 and 1994, she basically swaps out Connor's model for Asperger's model. Yes, that's oversimplification, but it's also kind of true. She does it um, in different ways. She adds Asperger syndrome to uh, the DSM. You know, people say, well, oh yes, Hans Asperger, he discovered Asperger syndrome. No, no, no. He discovered the autism spectrum. Uh, but Asperger syndrome was like a kludge, in a sense, made to apply to teenagers and adults who had always been shut out of the diagnosis before. It also did not have the word autism because of Connor's theory that 
refrigerator mothers were responsible for autism and refrigerator fathers, the word autism carried a heavy and, and you know, completely traumatic load of stigma. So parents would sometimes not accept the diagnosis of autism for their children. But Lorna, you know, it was like smart marketing, really. She knew that if she could come up with an autism diagnosis that didn't say the word autism, that it might be popular. And boy, was she ever right. Obviously, Asperger's syndrome, you know, took off. I mean, just fast forward. I mean, that was still in the 70s that this change really took. Well, the changes to the DSM were 86 and 94. Okay. Yeah. Uh, So this is still, you know, 20 years in the past to where we are. And uh, Indra and I both have had kids relatively recently. And I can, I could feel the stigma. Like, I remember, like, looking at my child, like, six months, 12 months. I even had a Google calendar alert that would come up that would say, like, make sure that he's making face contact with you. Because of how terrified I was Mm -hmm. of what my child having autism meant. That stigma carried through for so long. Yeah. Uh, Why did were so pe- people so afraid of of this diagnosis because that's really the lens of of your book in a lot of sense like seeing the perspective of autism as a from a family that's struggling with it well i have two seemingly oppositional answers to that question one of them is that the reason one of the main reasons why autism became a diagnosis that was perceived as a fate worse than death and that that's often you know, I mean, I had several parents tell me that that's what the clinicians told them. You know, like, like uh, you must learn to bear this. You know, like the absolutely most, you know, hopeless, you know, diagnoses. One of the main reasons why that happened was because Connor believed that refrigerator parents caused autism, his recommended course of treatment was institutionalization. Oh, my God. And so two generations of autistic children vanished into, and we're not talking about luxurious autism wards. We're talking about psych wards for adult psychotics and, um, uh, you know, residential schools for what used to be called adult retardates. Um, and so the, you know, the, the autistic children were put in brutal environments subjected to unbelievably harsh forms of behavior modification once that took off in the 60s and 70s. Oliver told me, and I describe it in my book, that um, when he first started working at Bronx Psychiatric, he was working on a ward called uh, Ward 23, where autistic people were put, and there were lots of other speed freaks and an assortment of people that the hospital didn't know what to do with. And he said that um, patients were routinely put in straitjackets and left to lie in their own waste in isolation for weeks. And he objected to this, of course, because he was a great humanitarian. And in fact, he wrote an article for the Hospital Journal, which I have not been able to find, but I, I, I assure you, if a single copy exists in any cabinet anywhere in the Bronx, I'm going to find it someday. Mm-hmm. But he wrote, a, he wrote an article about communication between the patients, non, non-verbal communication between the patients on Ward 23. He realized that these patients that were considered non-communicative or something were actually communicating with each other all the time. Actually, now I'm obsessed. I have to find that article. But um, And Oliver told me, and I talk about this in my book, that he wrote a book called Ward 23 about his experience of the autistic patients there. But after he was transferred, 
he, or actually he, he was transferred, then wrote the book. He lost confidence and threw the only copy of it into the fire. So that's a lost Oliver Sacks book. Um, written about autistic patients and under in these horrible conditions. I think that's one also misconception that a lot of people have about Oliver's career path is that people think, you know, he wrote a book. It was called Awakenings, and he became famous, right. and he's had a great career ever since. Right. But you know, he spent decades, you know, in essentially isolation intellectually yeah. because yeah. people weren't accepting his ideas and, yeah. and his his views, and you know, he he felt very alone. And I think yeah. that, you know, in some ways, we 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 read his work and we see this, you know, very kind of social genius, essentially, right. in the way that he's able to analyze these patients, and yet, really, it comes from a place where the person himself. Um, was was really lonely, I think. Right. And wasn't there, isn't there some famous anecdote that he might tell in Uncle Tungsten, or perhaps on the move, where um, his father comes in one night after Migraine is published and says something like, your name is in the news. Like, it was clear, like, that yeah. was not done. It's like the worst you know? thing right? that exactly. can happen it was to a you. Scandal, yep. you know? Yep. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. But so, you know, basically, one of the reasons why autism was considered a fate worse than death was institutionalization. And not surprisingly, when autistic kids were put in uh, institutions and subjected to these really brutal conditions, they would become self injurious. And so they would literally chew through their own fingers or bang their heads against walls until they bled. And so that was considered the natural course of autism. So people said if autism was not treated, which and no one knew how to treat it until the behaviorist came along, um, that was what autism was, 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 you know, but it wasn't. That was autism plus institutionalization. So, and we only figured that out once people like Temple Grandin came along who had somehow escaped being institutionalized. Uh, she escaped being institutionalized because she wasn't diagnosed with autism. She was diagnosed with minimal brain damage, which was one of the many specious diagnoses that, you know, that kids with autism were diagnosed with. Um, anyway, but so, so that's one thing. Then the other seemingly opposite answer, autism is really challenging, you know, for parents. I mean, it involves, you know, no eye contact. You don't get the, you don't get the signals of love and, and, you know, I love you, mommy. Like, you know, all those little sweet things that neurotypicals crave, you know, you don't get them. Uh, and plus, you know, maybe the kid can't speak. Uh, maybe it looks like the kid doesn't care about anybody, you know? So I, I, I empathize. Like, I understand why parents are so freaked out about autism, but we have to figure out basically how to build a better world for autistic people. And what you notice is that when autistic people are in a situation that's good for them, or, you know, like when they're around other autistic people, they're actually really comfortable and sweet and funny. And, you know, they're not, when they're not being sensorially overloaded. But for so long, the world only saw autistic people in these sort of you know, clinical conditions. So one of the things that, um, one, of the, one of the reasons I think from your book, Lorna Wing wanted to change this diagnostic criteria so that more people could get access to the services that actually might help, uh, you know, kids with the diagnosis. Is, is that accurate? That's absolutely true. There's a parent in my book 
who, when uh, she was told that her kid was autistic, she asked, well, what can I do for him? You know, what, what's, where do we go from here? And uh, she was told by an expert, why don't you let him play in the garden with a ball? Like that, that like that was it. There was nothing. That, uh, basically, autistic kids, before uh, things changed, were sent to, in England, what were called centers for the severely subnormal where they would like taught, you know, taught how to basket weave or whatever. So, you know, what she did was enlarge the diagnosis and enlarge the the notion that services were needed for these families. And then, of course, there was an increase in the number of kids that were being diagnosed. As she predicted. Freaked out parents. As she, well. And then something else happened. Right. Well, so what what happened uh, was there was a spike in diagnoses just as Lorna Wing intended and predicted, she was not surprised at all. But the only people who knew why it was happening was this small, ingrown circle of experts who were studying this allegedly rare condition. Then suddenly we were discovering it wasn't so rare, the numbers started going up, and then Andrew Wakefield comes along and blames the rise in diagnoses on vaccines. Now, he said, and I have him on the record as saying, I knew nothing about autism, before uh, he began his his infamous now retracted study for the Lancet, um, amazing that in a couple of years, while running an extremely complicated study, he was able to go from someone who knew nothing about autism to you know the most influential person in the world on the subject. Anyway, we all know uh, that Andrew Wakefield's study was not you know kosher, but the problem is that he introduced the idea that. Autism, and he wasn't the first person to come up with even the theory that vaccines cause autism. I talk about other people before Wakefield, but he popularized the idea that autism was the unique disorder of of our modern world, that it was caused by the MMR vaccine. Um, you know, other people were saying that it was because of mercury in uh, in used as vaccine preservatives, and that notion has proven particularly difficult to dislodge. The notion that autism is modern, that there were no autistic kids in the past, or, you know, even if people admit that there were autistic because where did Temple Grandin come from? Well, they'll say, well, but there wasn't regressive autism. Actually, you know, where a child appears to lose skills, you know. Well, actually, if you look at Lorna Wing's basic prevalence study, you know, a decade before the MMR vaccine was introduced in, in England, um, you see that a lot of the kids would appear to lose skills. Connor wrote about kids losing skills. John Langdon Down in the 19th century in Earlswood Asylum in Surrey talked about kids losing skills, losing wanted brightness, he called it. So, you know, parents are terrified because they've been convinced that there's this new form of autism. No, it's not like the old autism. It's this new autism that's caused by vaccines. It's not true. Um, there has always been quote-unquote regressive autism. So, but that, the reason why, you know, even if you don't believe that vaccines cause autism, the reason why thinking that autism is a product of the modern world is so dangerous is because that means a couple of things. Adults, autistic adults and their needs, which are considerable, become invisible to you because you think that they simply don't exist. Jenny McCarthy literally once said, there were no autistic adults in the past, it's all now. She literally said that. So in a sense, it's like the ultimate injustice 
against these people because they were invisible back then, because they were in institutions. Let's make them invisible again by claiming that autism is a product of the modern world. The other thing is that, you know, what is the appropriate societal scientific response to an, a, a modern epidemic, an epidemic of modern origin, whatever it is, whether it's Monsanto pesticides or Wi-Fi or antidepressants in the water supply or, you know, all of those things have been proposed. Um, well, what you do is you go look for the, the new toxic risk factor. Uh, and so basically we have been spending money as a, as a nation as if autism is of modern origin. So we've been looking for environmental risk factors. We've also been looking for uh, risk factors in the human genome. Um, boy, we've done a really good job of identifying candidate genes for autism. We found between 600 and 1,000 candidate genes. So there's no shortage of genes that may play a role in autism. But no two cases of, of autism are alike, even at the level of genetics. So, you know, is that interesting science? Of course, it's great. I have a lot of friends who are autism scientists. It's wonderful. However, it's not so wonderful if families are left to twist slowly in the wind with no services after their kids, quote unquote, age out of services when they graduate school. It means that our society has its priorities wrong. So there's been dramatic investment into autism over the past just 15 years, let alone just even the past five years. Where do you see the need? Well... In June, the Government Accountability Office issued a report that said that the spending on research into improving the lives of autistic adults has gone down in recent years. That should be a national scandal. Nobody thinks about autistic adults, and it's no surprise. You look at the websites for, uh, you know, fundraising organizations, kids, kids, kids. You know, this is nothing new. Uh, pity and, and kids with disabilities have been used to extract money from potential donors since the days of Jerry Lewis's telethon. But in this case, because autistic adults are invisible to us, we're not spending the money to improve their lives. And you know, there's, there, are some, like, there are so many fields that are underfinanced in autism research. Let me name two. Autistic women. It's, you know, it's long been believed that uh, it's, it, autism is four times more prevalent among boys. And the belief that it's more prevalent among boys is, goes all the way back to Asperger. Um, well, is it really? Or is it that autism presents very differently in girls? That's a very, and I'm not being arch or asking rhetorical questions. It's a very good question. Is autism as prevalent in women as it is in men? We now, you know, assume that it's not, but maybe it is, and we don't know how to look for it. Autism in minority communities. Um, that one in 68 estimate from the CDC, you know, well, it turns out the estimated prevalence of autism in, among uh, the Hispanic community in Florida, I believe, is much lower than one in 68. Is that because there's less autism in Hispanic families in Florida? No, it's because Hispanic families have had limited access to health care, you know. And so Leo Connor believed that autism was a, a disorder of upper middle class families. Why? Because only upper middle class families could afford to see him or, to, you know, could get through the referral pyramid to see him. So there are all these confirmation biases built into autism research, and we have to start taking the blinders off and 
seeing what's in front of our eyes. So I just want to remind our listeners that your now New York Times bestselling book, you're, you're joining Oliver on that uh, lofty bench, uh, is available at fine booksellers everywhere. It's called Neurotribes. The long legacy of autism. The legacy of autism. It does seem long, but (laughs) the interminable legacy legacy of autism. autism. (laughs) And the future of neurodiversity. So I'd like to, I know we're out of time. I just want to end with one more question to you. What is your favorite memory of Oliver? This is a nice one and it's very short. I was in a health food store on Stanion Street, actually, with Oliver one day. And we saw um, some sage leaves uh, and they were very furry. And I knew that Oliver had quite an interest in botany. So I said to him, Oliver, why do you think sage leaves are so furry? And I was expecting a botanist's answer. And he said, because they like it. (laughs) Yeah, he had a wonderful sense of humor. (laughs) Yes, he sure did. Thank you for joining us on Inquiring Minds, Steve Silberman. Thank you. It was a real pleasure watching you and Steve swap stories about Oliver. I, I felt like I was in a, a living room just hearing you reminisce about an old friend. It was really great. I have so many more uh, where that came from. He was he was an incredible man, you know, really interesting. I, it was just such an honor every time I got to be in his presence or got to meet people that he had touched. And you know, it is amazing to me how many neurologists now are neurologists because of Oliver. So let me ask you the question you asked Steve to close. What's your favorite memory of Oliver? Ah, uh, you know, that's that's a really tough one. And I, you know, I I think it probably comes back to um, you know, one of the times when I got to work with him on a with a patient. And we were at UCSF and I had, um, he was he was writing a book on memory, which actually I think is one of the manuscripts that is still unpublished, because um, I haven't seen that work yet published. And we were talking to this set of patients. It was a, a patient and her caregiver husband. Um, and what was amazing was that, you know, Oliver himself was not not always an easy person, um, you know, he had, he, he had, you know, quirks and, you know, there were demands. And so, you know, the neurologists and the staff around, um, him, you know, we was a little bit stressful sometimes to make sure that he had, you know, the right things that he needed, that he was comfortable, he had back pain and so forth. And, um, and, all of a sudden, you know, here we were all kind of like just nervous. Is, is, is this going to be okay? Did we get the right patient? And the patient walks in and, you know, Oliver completely changes into, you know, the, the person whose bedside manner is completely impeccable and puts the patient completely at ease. Now, the rest of the neurologists in the room were still stressed, but, you know, the patient was completely uneasy. It was just, it's, it was amazing to watch. And, you know, one of the things that um, I, I also think goes on, went unnoticed for a long time with Oliver is that he did have a rather difficult relationship with the establishment um, in neuroscience. And especially early on, a lot of his work was just, you know, not respected and it wasn't published. And to this day, there are neuroscientists who, you know, sort of question the utility of putting such a human face on, on you know, these disorders because they claim that, you know, he maybe glossed over some important issues or, you know, there, there, there are sort of lots of, um, worry about what the popularization of some of these patient cases really did for the patients. Now, I think their argument is misplaced. And I actually think that whenever I I did, you know, try to tackle a really difficult, even neurological or cognitive subject, 
you know, Oliver really was at the forefront of thinking about, you know, how these things work. But one thing that I remember is how passionate he was about the importance of publishing case studies and small group studies. And I'm actually one of the editors of a journal called Neurocase. And it's a little journal, you know, we don't have a huge impact factor. And it's often hard to get reviewers. And I often ask eminent, you know, scientists to review. And, you know, more often than not, they just don't have time for me. But Oliver always had time. I would send him, you know, a, a case that, that I thought that he would be interested in and he would come back. He'd, he'd like typewrite a review and send it to me and it would just be eloquent. And, you know, he, he always found time to do those reviews. Which I think people don't really know. How is the, uh, I mean, we've talked a, a, a lot about the legacy that he leaves, but how is some of his stuff going to live on? So one of the things that they have done is they've created an Oliver Sacks Foundation. And so in, you know, in lieu of, of gifts to anything that, you know, sometimes when people die, people donate money to, you know, something or other. And so what his longtime personal assistant, who actually, I would argue, one of the reasons that Oliver has been so prolific is because of the hard work of Kate Edgar. Um, she's amazing. And, you know, I really wish I had a Kate Edgar in my life um, because she was able to, you know, put his massive amounts of, of writing, you know, into these amazing books. But um, so she's, uh, you know, been instrumental in starting this foundation. You can find out more about it at um, oliversacks.com slash Oliver hyphen Sachs hyphen foundation, or just Google Oliver Sacks foundation, you can get there. And this foundation is designed to bring the rest of his work um, to the general public, but also to foster the the publishing of non of narrative nonfiction stories um, and bring the human side of patients to light. Thank you, Oliver. Thank you. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or at inquiringshow.tumblr.com. And you can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow, on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. And now you can support us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And once again, this week's episode is sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly to you. To get $50 towards any one of their obsessively engineered mattresses, visit casper.com slash inquiringminds and use promo code inquiringminds. And this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming or DVD and CD. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And now for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of Practicing Mindfulness, an introduction to meditation. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by the man who mistook his wife for a hat, Adam Isaac, in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, City Lab, Medium, and The Huffington Post. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chien. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari, at Science Quiche. See you next week.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.